If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning as we continue on in our series in what has been called the greatest letter ever written, Romans chapter 8, and we are looking at verses 28 to 30 this morning. It's on page 944 if you're using the church Bible, and as usual, I encourage you to have your own copy open, reading along with me as we look at God's word together this morning. Before we do, let's pray and call on the Lord to bless the preaching and hearing and receiving of his word. Father in heaven, we pray that you would draw near to us and that you would make your word effectual in us. With the psalmist, we confess that your word is sweeter than honey, and the honeycomb more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. We pray, our God, that you would make us to taste the sweetness and to realize the value of the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would hear your voice and that we would understand more of what you've accomplished for us, more of what your sufferings have merited for us. We pray, Father, that you would make us to know more of what we have in Christ, that you would assure those that need to be assured, that you would convert those that need to be converted, that you would accomplish your purposes according to your wisdom, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8, beginning in verse 28, and I'll back up. Paul has been um, talking about the three groanings, the groaning of creation, the groaning of the believer, and the groaning of the Holy Spirit within the believer in this fallen world, especially as the believer suffers, as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. And then in verse 26, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This ends the reading of God's word to us this morning. Well, in her book, The God I Love, Johnny Erickson Tata has a line that resurfaces in different forms throughout that book. It's a very powerful line, especially from a woman who at 17, became a quadriplegic, and um, Johnny Erickson Tata says in several different ways in that book, God allows, and she means sovereignly ordaining, he allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. It's a very powerful way of summing up, really, what the Apostle Paul is going to move into now as he's been talking about the suffering of believers and believers who are not under the condemnation of God. This chapter, again, is saying God takes us from no condemnation, you're justified in Christ, verse 1, to no separation when he brings you to glory. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Death itself cannot. So no condemnation to no separation, and yet in that time in between, there are sufferings and there is grief and there is indwelling sin and there is warfare and there is groaning. There is deep soul groaning in the believer, and the Holy Spirit is groaning with the believer. God is there with the believer in the sufferings. It's not just that God is looking back and saying, I'll help you in the sufferings, but that the Holy Spirit of Christ who is in us 
is groaning within us, praying, Paul says, notice, interceding in the end of verse 27 for the saints according to the will of God. We don't know how to pray as we ought. We don't know what to ask the Lord for the way we ought to. We don't know what God's secret will is. We don't know if God wants someone who suffers some great physical harm for the gospel to be healed or someone that is born with an infirmity to get better in this life. We don't know God's hidden providences and mysteries, and yet the Spirit prays in the believer. As the believer suffers in this fallen world, this groaning world, prays according to the will of God. And then Paul makes this phenomenal statement. It is, it is uh, most people's favorite Bible verse in the Bible. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And it's a verse like this, that when you get that, And when you get what Paul means by that, that you can say with Johnny Erickson Tata, after you have suffered a disability to the extreme degree that she has, that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. It's interesting that the man who wrote this epistle was suffering in prison during his time of writing most of the epistles, and he'll actually tell the Philippians that I know that while I'm in chains, that this will turn out for the furtherance of the gospel. I know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Well, we want to see two things today. And just so you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached like 15 sermons on these three verses. So this is full, and I'm going to try to give it to you as measured as I can. And we may have to come back next week and look at more. And yet we want to see just two things. First, we want to see the assurance of comfort for the believer. And then we want to see the assurance of God fulfilling his purposes. The assurance of comfort for the believer and the assurance of God fulfilling his purposes. Well, notice that Paul just phases right in in verse 28. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's interesting that when we think about the world, we hear the gospel. We hear that Christ has triumphed. He crushed the serpent's head. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. Jesus himself said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And then we look around. The world doesn't look overcome. And saints are suffering. And believers are still battling with sin. And the question is, where's that victory? Where is, why is the world not working the way I think the world should work based on what I've been told by God about what Jesus has done? And we're like a child. We're like a child thinking he knows best. He knows what his parents should be giving him. He knows, he knows what's best. And, and we essentially oftentimes are, are saying to God, I know better than you. Lord, this, this shouldn't work this way. My life shouldn't be like this. This shouldn't happen this way. This should be like this, and this should be like this. And so Paul brings the most massive pastoral theological statement, maybe in all of the Bible, to bear to suffering believers, and he says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I want to say this this morning. If you don't get that, when the hard times come, you're done. If you don't get this spiritually, when the hard times come, you're done. You will fall apart. There is no anchor. There will be nothing for you. Now, here's what we want to say. What, what is Paul saying here when he's assuring believers 
of the comfort that they have that God is working together everything together for their good. And it's interesting, commentators will raise the question, well, clearly the context is suffering. And so we can clearly say, even that suffering in some way, God's going to bring good out of that. We see that with Job, right? Job suffers. God (laughs) takes away his children, takes away his livestock, takes away his health, lets Satan loose. And yet James can tell us, you see the end that God had for Job, the patience and the endurance that he had. And the latter end, he blessed him more than at the beginning after the suffering. There was good. Job learned more about God. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a phenomenal statement. I, I was listening to this the other day, and I thought, how can anybody even get that out of Scripture the way he did? He said, um, he's talking about the prodigal son. And, and he's sort of talking about how not just suffering, but also sin. God's working everything, every aspect. Let me actually read you this quote by, by John Murray. Not one detail of a believer's life works ultimately for evil to the people of God. In the end, only good will be their lot. Not one detail. And that's the suffering, the hardship, the sin, all of it. God is orchestrating all of it for the good of his people. And, um, and so it's easy for us to say, well, the suffering we can see, Johnny Erickson Tata, is used in a massive way that she never would have been used to point Jesus to, people to Jesus and give people who are suffering hope. And, and if, if that hadn't happened, if she hadn't jumped off of that raft into those rapids, that what, it would have been better. Johnny Erickson Tata wouldn't be paralyzed today. And yet the, the massive impact that she's had, God was working that together for good. The joy that she helps others in her situation, get from the gospel, that her suffering was working together for her good and others, and I would argue for the good of the whole church, that God works all things together for the good of his people as a whole, as well as individuals. And it's easy for us to see how that happens in suffering, Um, and yet I think it's harder for us to see how it happens with sin, and Lloyd-Jones gives this remarkable insight from the parable of the prodigal son, Lloyd-Jones says, Romans 8.28 includes even our falling into sin, even our backsliding. God can turn it to the advantage of the Christian. When we truly repent, he stands ready to forgive us. The prodigal son knew much more about his father after he came back than he ever knew before he left home. That's profound. This is very profound. The prodigal knew more about his father after he came back than he did before he left home. He thought he knew before he left home, but he didn't. It was when he was received back, when he saw his father running to meet him, when he was yet a long way off and embracing him, he never knew anything about this before. So you see, though he was quite wrong in leaving home and going to that foreign land, and all that he did there in that riotous living, it was all wrong. But he was a very much better man at the end than at the beginning. He knew more about sonship. He knew more about his father. He knew more about his father's love. That's a remarkable statement. What Lloyd-Jones just did was take a parable of Jesus and and pushed it through Romans 8.28. And he said, even the rebellion of the people of God, when they repent and they come back to God and they're forgiven and they, they learn more about God. You can see this with Adam. Had God never ordained the fall, we would never know the glories of the higher state that we're going to know for all eternity in Jesus Christ. We're going to know to a higher degree what Adam could have ever attained to by his own obedience. God's going to bring better good out of the sin of our first father. And 
even the sin of the people of God, even those, those, those huge mistakes. We see this so clearly in the Old Testament. My favorite example is King David. David's a man after God's own heart. He makes two humongous mistakes in his life that the Bible sets out. He commits adultery and murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, one of his mighty men. And then he numbers the people in pride. Those are the two big sins that David commits. And, and he suffers severe consequences. The sword never departs from David's house. His own sons, the mess, the havoc that it wreaked on, on, on the whole house of David, the, the consequences. Um, and then the numbering of the people, 70,000 people die under the greatest leader in Israel's history because of his pride. And yet God brought good out of both of those things because the relationship of David and Bathsheba they had four sons, two of whom are in the two genealogies of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. Matthew 1, Luke 3. They had a son named Nathan. From him came Mary, the mother of Jesus. They had a son named Solomon. It's the royal line from whom Joseph came, the adopted line into which Jesus is born. The Redeemer comes from the relationship of David and Bathsheba. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to their purpose. The plague was stopped. God sent a plague. He killed 70,000 people. David cried out to the Lord. He interceded. The Lord stopped the plague. Where it was stopped was at a place called the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. David bought that threshing floor. He offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And in the next generation, his son built the temple there. The very place where God's wrath against David's sin was stopped and obviously pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus by the gospel, the wrath was stopped, the temple was built, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I could go on and on and on. And so what this needs to do is this needs to sink down that when I'm going through the hardship and the difficulties, when everything in life seems to be going backwards, my situations are frustrating. I don't understand why I'm not getting better. I don't understand how this could happen to this person. I don't understand why I fell like I fell. And I just said, these were big sins David committed. Yet, the Bible says God is working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Of course, we have to give the disclaimer. Notice how careful Paul is when he's giving this large comfort. He doesn't say all things work together for good for everybody because all things didn't work together for good for Pharaoh and all things didn't work together for good for Jezebel and Ahab and Judas. The Bible is very clear that all things don't work together for good for everybody. All things work together for good for those who love God. That's the mark. That's the litmus test for those that love God, those who have a heart full of love for the living God, the triune God, all things work together for good. For those who don't love God, all things are working together for their, for their destruction. Everything is working together. Even the good things that they enjoy will go against them on judgment day. But Paul says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, of course, we have to understand, and I think this is connected in many respects to what goes before, that Paul is really saying God works all things for good. He's not saying they just sort of work themselves out, that in some sort of fatalistic sense, they just work themselves out and somehow everything's just going to be okay because God built that into the structure of the universe in some kind of deistic way. He's saying that God actively, he's ordained everything. Our confession says he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Paul's actually going to tell us, it's funny, he, he can't take one step from this verse 
before he says, for those who are called according to his purpose. So what lies behind the person who loves God is the eternal purpose of God. So while love for God is the mark that you're in Christ, if you love him, then you are known by him and you know him and all things work together for good for you. But what lies behind that is the eternal purpose of God. And what Paul is really doing is he's, he is at every step telling you the important, the important indicators, but then he's saying, here's, here's the more important thing. Here's more important than your love for God is God's purpose to work all things together for you and God's love for you. Ian Hamilton said, and, and my best friend said this at my wedding, the most important thing about you, if you're a believer, is not that you love God, but that God has loved you. That's the, most, that's the more important thing. Lloyd-Jones in that sermon will actually say exactly the same thing. He'll go on to say, um, the great thing is not even our good. So the great thing about Romans 8.28 is not even that God's going to work it all together for good. That's not the greatest thing about it. Lloyd-Jones says, if you're a believer, the great thing is God's purpose. Our good or any good that comes to us is nothing but a part of the carrying out of the great purpose of God. So, so Romans 8.28 is not, this is about you and it's all going to be great for you. It's saying, if you love God, God is going to work it all together for your good in the end. And you may not see and understand how that's all working. I heard a minister give an incredible illustration about this. He said when he was a boy, back when you could open watches and see all the gears... He said you, you would see the, the hand on the clock turning in one direction, but then you'd see gears moving in the other direction. And you'd think, how, how can these gears be moving in seemingly different, the wrong direction, and yet give me the right time? It's a great illustration of what, what is being said in Romans 8, 28. And yet, it's not even that God's going to work it all together for good for you that's the most comforting thing it's that God is behind that he's the one who has called you he has a plan and a purpose in everything that means and let me say this this morning it doesn't matter if you are the least known person in Richmond Hill nobody knows who you are you don't have any friends it doesn't matter there is not one single second of your life if you are in Christ that isn't working together in God's perfect plan. You know, most of us, we, I'm a very outspoken Calvinist. Most of us, some of us maybe, are outspoken Calvinist. Um, I think most of us are bad practical Calvinist. So a lot of us are good intellectual Calvinists. God's sovereign. God ordains everything. Man's dead in sins. God has to call us. God ordained whatsoever comes to pass. God is working everything together for good. But then when the trials come, we complain and we grumble and we break under them and we don't trust him through it. And that shows that we're really not good Calvinists because a good Calvinist is going to say, Lord, I know that this is going to work together for my good. I don't know how. It's painful, but I know that you are using this in my life for good. Some of the ways that God uses these circumstances, and I think some of the largest ways is that God uses suffering and he uses sin to help humble his people. You know, if we, spiritual pride is, is an evil thing and an ugly thing, and if we, were, if we were just given great victory after great victory after great victory and comfort and, and, and lots of uh, possession and, and power and wealth, we would we'd probably all 
fall very hard. And so God keeps his people humble. Paul says this, doesn't he? Because of the abundance of revelation, Paul says, because God made me know more than most people, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Paul is saying that a thorn in the flesh that I prayed that God would take away three times was God working all things together for my good to keep me humble. And God often does that with hardship. Why, does it, why don't things go better? Things are happening for you the best way possible, and we just don't recognize that. And we're not recognizing. And we should all be able to say, this is right where God has me. I'm in the crucible. This is right where God has me. David learned this. David, oh, by the way, all, the, all the, the authors of scripture, were they got Romans 8, 28 before it was ever written. And David in Psalm 119 said, it is good for me that I was afflicted because I've learned to keep your commandments. David saw affliction even as a benefit to growth in grace and godliness. And so God is working every single thing together for the good of his people, but he's doing it, notice what Paul says, according to his eternal purpose. I would ask you this morning that you would examine your heart and say, how do I view my life, my circumstances, hardships, trials, sin, do I conflict with others? How do I view that? Do I, do I view that merely naturalistically like every other unbeliever views that? Or do I see God at work in my life, even through the trials and the challenges and the suffering and the failings? Do I see him at work in my life? Do I see him working out his perfect plan for my good? Um, Adolphe Monod, he I've mentioned him before. He was a French reform minister in the 19th century who died of cancer, and he wrote... Uh, a book called Living in the Hope of Glory. It was his last 25 sermons from his deathbed. And Adolphe Monat made this amazing statement about really getting Romans 8.28. It's in his sermon on uh, Romans 8.28. He said, In heaven, we will consider it a great privilege to have suffered much beneath the cross of Jesus. He's dying of cancer. And he says, In heaven, we will consider it a great privilege to have suffered much beneath the cross of Jesus. I thought when I read that, I was like, wow. We, will, we, look, we don't want it now. In heaven, we will see that it was a great privilege to suffer for Christ and with Christ, to be made more like Christ. And so secondly, Paul tells us about, he assures us about God's purpose. And, and what is the purpose? Is, well, if the purpose is not my good, ultimately, though that's going to happen. So my good, I'm not God. I'm not God, me, work, everything working out great for me is not, the, is not the ultimate reason, though all things will work out for good for us if we love God, but it's his purpose. What is his purpose? Notice verse 29, and, and there he's, he's explaining the purpose of God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Paul takes it right back to Jesus, and he says, the purpose of God in the difficulties and the struggles and the trials and even the sin in a believer's life is to conform the believer into the image of Jesus, to give him the family likeness, to take these adopted children and to to transform them to look more and more and more like the beautiful Son of God, and that the Son of God gets glory that he gets glory 
out of all of that happening. Now, somebody could say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. Why do I have to suffer to be made like Jesus? Well, let me say this this morning. The, the worst evil that ever happened in the world was the crucifixion of the Son of God. And the Son of God, having all the guilt and shame of the sins of his people laid upon him, all the wrath of the nations pressing against him, all of the wrath of his Father poured out upon him, taking upon himself all of the eternal misery that we deserve, all of the suffering that he endured. And at that moment at Calvary, at that moment, Everything that Paul says in Romans 8, 28 and 29 is coming to glorious light that God is going to work all things together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, because God's plan was to predestine a people to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And that what he did was that he produced the joy and he produced the blessing and the good, and he secured it through the evil that fell on him. And never could it ever have been said what was said by Joseph to his brothers after they had sold him into slavery and after they had treated him so cruelly. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And when Simon Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and he proclaimed to the very people who had crucified Jesus, you took him by lawless hands, but it was God's determined purpose to give his son up for crucifixion that you might have forgiveness of sins. And what, what's happening as we start to see when we look at the cross is that the purposes of God, the eternal purposes, are seen that God is doing all of this for his son. He's doing it, yes, to conform us into the image of his son, but notice what he says. He says in verse 29, in order that he might be, in order that, this is the end, The end goal is that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So all of your sufferings and all of your hardship in life is only playing into the glory that Jesus is going to get for all eternity when his brethren are with him and like him, singing his praises and giving him glory. And that's why. That's why. Why am I going through this? Why is this so hard? Because Jesus is going to be the firstborn among many brethren, and you, in God's eternal plan, are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, Paul Paul introduces the subject of predestination here. Why? Well, I think he's going to obviously wax eloquently on it in Romans 9. In a few weeks, we'll see that. But I think he does it because he wants you to see that This is nothing that we've contributed to the eternal purpose of God. God didn't foresee something you would do and then act upon that as if he learned something from you. God knew his people and he appointed them for this. And that's where where the comfort is. Where's my ultimate comfort? that I'm going to make it through the sufferings? Where's the ultimate comfort lie that one day all things are going to work together for good for, for Nick Batsik? Where is that? That is found in the fact that God foreknew me and predestined me to be conformed to the image of his son, that I was chosen in Jesus before the foundation of the world. And let me tell you this, far from being a doctrine that should upset people, that should give you the greatest comfort you could ever have because at the end of the day, you don't know if you'll make it if that's not true. And you can have no assurance and no comfort and no hope that all things will work together for good. And that is just, that is out the window if God has not sovereignly ordained everything for the good of his people and for the glory of his son. So Paul wants us to see that. And yet notice one final thing. Paul wants to make this so certain to you that Paul 
steps from the eternal counsel, where he says that you were chosen, you were predestined and appointed to be with Christ and to be like Christ, to notice what he does. Now he steps back into time in verse 30. He says, those whom he predestined, he called. He drew us effectually. He, he drew us to his son. And those whom he called, he also justified. He, he, he imputed righteousness to you, and he forgave your sins, and he made you righteous in Christ. That's back to verse 1. There is now no condemnation. He, he, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. This is called the golden chain. And those, those he justified, he also glorified. It's certain that everything's done. You're not there. You see what Paul's doing? All things going to work together for good. The greatest good is going to be your glorification with Christ in heaven. How do I know I'm going to get there? Because he already predestined me. He already called me. He already justified me. He is sanctifying me. He is conforming me. So all that's already done. Glorification is as good as done from start to finish. Everything is working together for good because of God's eternal purpose. I'm going to say this again this morning. This is only for you if you're in Jesus Christ. If, if you are not in Jesus Christ, none of this. You have no assurance that anything's going to work out for good. I have to say that. That's why Paul, Paul qualifies. And, and that should drive you to Jesus Christ. That should drive you to him. You should run to him. You should flee to him. You should flee the wrath to come. You should go to the arms of the gracious Savior and know the one that says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. I will draw him. I will justify him. I will glorify him. I will make all things work together for good for those that love me. If you're in Christ, if you love God, if that's the mark, and you know, I like how John Murray puts this, um, he'll say that um, love to God is both the most basic and the highest evidence of our Christianity. Love to God is the most basic and the highest evidence or mark that we're Christians. If you love God, if you hate sin, if you are in this battle, if God has redeemed you and you're in Christ and you're in the spirit and the spirit's in you and everything else that Paul has said in this chapter, then you every day of your life have to take comfort in the fact that God is working all things together for good. You know, this week I had one day that was particularly difficult and I had not gotten any sermon prep done, and it was just one of those days. You know these days. It was just one of those days. And I, and I found myself complaining, and I was complaining, and suddenly I thought, you know what? God is working this together for my good. Even the crummy days, which is nothing like the suffering that our brethren are enduring for the name of Jesus, this, this has application for every every aspect of every second of our lives. So we want, that to, we want that to flood our minds and hearts. We want to be convinced of the truths of Romans 8, 28 to 30, so that when the hard times come, and they're going to come, that we with Johnny Erickson Tata can say, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please... Make us to understand these truths spiritually, that you would send the Holy Spirit to write them indelibly on our souls, that you would illuminate our minds and hearts, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see what is the hope of our calling and the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints 
with Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would draw us to him in a new and fresh way this morning. As we come to the table, we pray that you would comfort us with what has been secured for us in the death of our Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.